Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is, what does the U.S. Government Accountability Office do? To answer that question, we have Gene Dodaro. Who is he? He is the 8th Comptroller General of the United States. That means he is the head of the GAO. He's held that position since 2010, and prior to that, he held other executive positions at GAO, including Chief Operating Officer. Remarkably, Gene has spent a half of a century at the agency. So with all that experience, I can think of nobody better to ask the question, what does the Government Accountability Office do? Gene, welcome to the program. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Kevin. Let's start at the very beginning, which is a very good place to start. GAO was created a century ago as an agency. Why? Why did Congress do that? Well, we were created in 1921, which was right after World War I. And the government had created uh, a large debt during that period of time in order to you know, promulgate the war. And there was concern about having a better, more disciplined process for the federal government's budget process. So actually, at the same time we were created in 1921 and the same legislation, the Bureau of the Budget, which is now known as the Office of Management and Budget, and OMB and the Executive Office of the President was created. And the very first requirement was put in place for the president to submit a budget annually to the Congress. Then GAO was placed in the legislative branch in order to provide a check and balance on the receipts and expenditures of federal funds and the proper application of those funds to meet the intent of the appropriation legislation for the Congress. So it was a it was a you know an arrangement put in place to provide more fiscal discipline to the federal government's budget process and execution. So at that time GAO had a different name, which to some degree reflected its uh, its more limited mission at the time. What was it called back then? It was the, the General Accounting Office. That's what it was when I first joined GAO in 1973. But the, uh, at that time, even, we were doing more than, than accounting. But that was our, our uh, original name, was the General Accounting Office. I mean, it seems that fundamentally... GAO was initially established um, to deal with a basic kind of principal agent problem that Congress faces, which is Congress, as the principal, passes a law, puts money towards achieving the objectives in the law, but then the job of actually spending the money and doing the execution is over in the executive branch. And so in terms of just visibility, and to understand, like, is this money going where it should go? Is it being used improperly? How is Congress to figure that out other than by hauling executives over uh, and asking them, in which case you're relying upon information they provide. So GAO, you all have the ability to 
get into the books of agencies, don't you, and to follow the money? Absolutely, Kevin. I mean, one of the roles of GAO is to make sure that the appropriation laws enacted by the Congress are properly implemented. Uh, and we audit the federal government's consolidated financial statements every year. We've worked to create an arrangement where the inspector generals of each major department and agency audit or arrange for independent audits of the books of the financial uh, operations of each federal agency across uh, the federal government. And then we review that work. It's done in accordance with our methodology. And then we audit some agencies individually, like the IRS, for example. We audit all the receipts that they collect for the federal government. We audit the Bureau of Public Debt. We audit the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And then we review all these other audits across government and then issue our report on the government's consolidated financial statements. We also issue legal decisions that anyone has a question in Congress about the proper application of the funds and whether it was done in accordance with appropriation law. So we're very much the sort of the oversight. You know, Congress is very out-resourced by the executive branch, and that's why they need a strong uh, GAO in order to provide that oversight over them. So the system of checks and balances in our government work properly and uh, that the executive branch properly executes the laws that are put in place by the Congress. And we've grown over the years to not just on fiscal issues, but whether or not government programs and activities and everything the federal government does is accordance with the authorizing legislation of the federal government's activities. Actually, only about 10% of what we do now is in the original role that we had back in 1921 in the financial management area. Most of the work, the vast majority, over 90%, is looking to see whether programs and activities uh, by the Congress and policies that they put in place, regulations they put in place, are operating as intended, and to make sure the government is operating as efficiently and effectively in accordance with congressional direction as possible, or whether there's need to make refinements to laws and regulations in to help Congress with their fundamental oversight functions, as well as their appropriation and authorization responsibilities. So the uh, the listener who you know, surfs over to GAO.gov and starts scanning all the great stuff you have there might see the term bid protest and say, huh, what is that about? So what is bid protest uh, and what's GAO's role there? We've had that role for decades uh, through the Competition and Contracting Act. Uh, what it basically involves, Kevin, is that you know every year, you know, federal government spends five hundred billion dollars or more to procure certain things, services, uh, items, etc. And so, if you're a contractor that bids on a government contract and you don't win, and you're concerned that the federal agency or department didn't follow the laws or things weren't properly clear in their procurement process and you think you weren't treated fairly, you can come to GAO and file a bid protest and say you don't think this was followed for the following reasons. GAO will issue an opinion within 100 days 
as to whether or not we sustain the protest or deny the protest. Uh, sometimes the agencies, once the protest is made, uh, and understand the, the concerns that they have, sometimes they'll take uh, immediate action to rectify uh, the situation. And so we have a, a team of uh, you know, highly skilled procurement experts in law here at GAO in our Office of General Counsel. They'll hold hearings, they'll take documents from the protesters and the agencies, and then eventually they'll render a decision. We probably get about uh, well over 2,000 of these bid protests every year. Competition for federal procurements is keen. And in some areas, there's been consolidation in the industries, which even makes the competition a little bit more intense. So I want to talk a little more about something you uh, alluded to already, which is that you know GAO had this more limited mission 100 years ago, and it's subsequently been expanded. Uh, and if memory serves, one of the first expansions occurred around 1974. This was a period when Congress as a whole had just decided to bulk up its power. It was tired of being pushed around by the executive, whether it was President Nixon President Johnson, and it just started investing in itself. It created a Congressional Budget Office. It created a new Budgeting Act. It expanded the Legislative Reference Service into the Congressional Research Service, invested in more staff, and it gave GAO more to do. What was that first expansion in the early 70s? Well, actually, the, the first one came in 1970 when our role was expanded to include program evaluation plus all the financial stuff that we have. So we've we, we rarely had anything taken away. It's been added to our responsibility. So that was first. But you're exactly right. In 1974, there was legislation passed in the Budget Control and Empowerment Act. And previously, you know, certain presidents had tried to not spend money that Congress had appropriated and withhold the funds. And so there was a lot of concern and debate about whether that was constitutional or not. And uh, and so there was an, eventually a, a law, an agreement worked out, where presidents could submit what are called rescissions, that where they would not spend the money that Congress has appropriated, but Congress would have to be notified. They would be given 45 days, and they had to approve that rescission in order for it to take place. And if not, then the executive branch was to then spend the money in accordance with congressional direction. There was also a different type of proposal called a deferral, uh, which the president would defer the money. And unless Congress acted against that within certain time frames, then that, that could be deferred. But most of it so focuses on the rescission part. Now, GAO's role is once there's a special message from the president to the Congress in order to rescind, make a proposal for rescission and occurs in these special messages, we have to, within 10 days, inform the Congress of what the impact of that rescission would be on the particular programs or activities uh, entailed. And then uh, Congress then acts within the 45 days. Now, if Congress doesn't act affirmatively, the money's to be released. So our job is to make sure, indeed, the money is released. And we're authorized to go to court in order to enforce the release of the money if the executive agencies do not do that of their own accord. 
Now, we also have, and, and only one time have we had to do that, uh, Kevin, that was right after the law was passed in the 70s, and it was involved the Housing and Urban Development Department. We, we actually uh, you know, notified Congress we were going to take this action, but before it got to, to court, uh, HUD released the money, so it, it, it didn't really get to, that far. And since then, we haven't really had any, any issues. Now, we uh, also have responsibility if we notice, and through our work or it comes to our attention uh, through other parties, and th- this will happen, federal decisions made by, by Congress and appropriation laws are you know virtually all public, except for certain highly classified areas. So people know that they're to expect some money or the agency's supposed to spend it in various areas. So if it comes to our attention, somebody says, hey, I... You know, this program was supposed to do X and it's not doing X. We'll go in and investigate on our own. And then we will issue a special message to the Congress if we think there was an impoundment made that wasn't reported uh, to the Congress. And so uh, that's basically our role under that legislation. And that, uh, you know, there'll be periods where there are no special messages to the Congress, there'll be other. Ones that there are messages over time, and there'll be some where we've identified, you know, things that that should have been reported to the Congress that weren't. We also have responsibility from our earlier role to make sure the agencies don't spend more than they're supposed to, but by the Congress, and that's called an anti-deficiency violation. And Congress asked us in recent times, to keep a section on our website of all anti-deficiency violations, which we do do. Yeah, that's terrific. Terrific. Well, GAO's duties continue to expand. I recall in the uh, late mid to late 1990s when Congress passed the Congressional Review Act, which is a vehicle by which Congress can strike down regulations, GAO was given additional reporting requirements related to uh, uh, regulations. But then 2004, GAO got its then new name. Uh, No longer was it the General Accounting Office, and it became the Government Accountability Office. With that, what other duties were added on? Well, actually, the name change, Kevin, was done to catch up with the past. As you've mentioned, a lot happened between 1921 in 2004, the, our expansion in the program evaluation, our expansion into the Budget Control and Impoundment Act, and, and uh, other uh, the the Competition and Contracting Act, and the bid protest area, and so uh, the General Accounting Office didn't fit us anymore, and it was impediment to recruiting the multidisciplinary task force that we need to do. You know, people would say, "Well, why do I want to?" Go work. I'm not an accountant. I don't want to work for the General Accounting Office. And, and in fact, you know, you know, all but maybe 10 percent of our people are uh, are not accountants right now. And so we changed the name in order basically to help us recruiting and also to better explain the new members of Congress and staff that our role was well beyond the accounting functions that were our origins uh, 100 years ago. And that we've evolved over time to a very multidisciplinary agency that does work across the federal government on anything the federal government's doing or thinking about doing. And so we have a very wide portfolio. We provide 
uh, support over 90% of the standing committees of the Congress. And we have subject area experts in every part of the federal government. Now, whether it's defense, healthcare, environment, et cetera, we have then technical specialists, actuary, scientists, information technology, cybersecurity specialists, et cetera. And so we have a very wide range of disciplines and all our work now mostly is uh, putting together in, uh, interdisciplinary teams in order to carry out the audits and functions that we do across the government and, you know, issue the hundreds of reports that we issue every year and provide expert witnesses to the Congress uh, for committees or whatever. So the name change, and it's really worked. It's really worked. It's made it easier to recruit. We have no problems recruiting highly talented people. Most of our people have advanced degrees. You know, we just have a terrific, uh, terrific workforce. Uh, in fact, in the last three years in a row now, we've been ranked the top place to work in the federal government for mid-sized agencies, and that further helps in, in recruiting. Well, perhaps reflecting the old uh, dictum, no good deed goes unpunished, uh, in 2018, Congress gave you yet another task to do. It asked you to pick up responsibilities that were similar to those that were once handled by the uh, Office of Technology Assessment, an agency in the ledge branch that was abolished back in 1994. What's this new line of work like? Excellent question, Kevin. I, that uh, was sort of evolving over time. It was in the early 2000s, we were asked to do a pilot to see if we could do technology assessments similar to what the Office of Technology Assessment had done. And and then, you know, I started hiring additional people. In fact, I hired our first chief scientist back in 2008. So we were sort of growing that function for a while uh, because we needed it to carry out our normal responsibilities as well as do these uh, special projects that Congress had asked us to pilot. And then, but as technology has evolved faster than any time in humankind, Congress was really uh, asked to make a decision whether do we create, recreate the Office of Technology Assessment or do we bolster the capabilities that GAO has been growing over this period of time. And they went with that option. Uh, and so since the, the 2018 period that you talk about, between 2019, I created a special team for science, technology assessments, and analytics we were able to populate that team with many people in GAO who were already working on some of these things. But from 2019 to up to 2023, most recently, we've tripled the size of that team in GAO and recruiting a lot more people, including our first uh, chief uh, data uh, analyst and uh, or data scientist, excuse me. And uh, so we uh, have great brought in a lot of other people with a lot of skills in the different science and technology areas. So what our responsibilities are now are to do, you know, technology assessments of, uh, of uh, different technologies. We've done ones, for example, on artificial intelligence and how it could be used to expedite drug development, how it's used uh, in uh, diagnosis of people, and then a third report on, on the treatment. And actually, we did those in conjunction with the National Institute of Medicine and the National Academy of Sciences. You know, I, I created a contract probably 20 years ago with the National Academies 
where we could go there and get them to help us identify the top experts in the country on any issue that we needed help on. And part of our methodology for doing the technology assessments are to convene expert panels where the National Academies help us do that. And so it's a very good resource. We also started creating, because there was a need in the Congress for sort of quick explainers of different science and technology issues, and we created two-page spotlights where you can go in, and we've done about 38 of these so far under our new responsibilities, and you can learn very quickly in, in simple language what a new technology might be, how it's applied, what some of the limitations are, what some of the policy issues are on that. Uh, For example, you know, quantum computing. Uh, We have one that explains how quantum computing is really going to make a lot of the current encryption methods archaic, and we need to get prepared for that uh, going into the future. What's 5G technology, and how does that work, and how does hypersonic weapons, we have one on that, how the How's that work? What's the status of that? What's the status of issues in advanced batteries? What, you know, so it spans across the entire range of the federal government's activities. And then the group also is, is set up to provide technical assistance uh, to the Congress uh, to help it and all the committees and all the members understand uh, different uh, issues related to science and technology, issues to help them in their oversight and legislative functions going forward. Most recently, we helped, for example, provide some explanations that help people understand the semiconductor uh, challenges that that we have as Congress was trying to create the uh, CHIPS Act uh, before, just to give you an example. But we do this on on all, all, all sorts and ranges of issues now. And I'm continuing to try to grow this group a little bit further uh, because the science and technology issues are going to dramatically change the type of issues that Congress needs to deal with. Also, our normal work uh, in looking at, for example, defense weapon systems. We audit uh, virtually uh, the, the portfolio of weapon systems, major weapon systems at DOD, and do in-depth reviews of certain ones, like the Columbia-class nuclear submarine, where you know I need people with nuclear backgrounds and experience on on those issues. And uh, yeah, you know, DoD is investing heavily now in artificial intelligence and hypersonic weapons, and and then you know on the uh, energy front, uh, decarbonization is a big issue. We've issued a technology assessment assessment on carbon capture uh, issues as well. Uh, a lot of issues on autonomous vehicles and technology driving those issues. Uh, and so, you know, we, we use uh, and need this capability to not only fill this particular need Congress has to deal with the science and technology issue, but it helps other committees in the Congress too so that we can give them a very sophisticated analysis of helping them make appropriation decisions on where to invest this money. Is it, are we ready to go into production for this particular technology? And in, in this group, we've also uh, created best practices guides. For example, we have one that can be applied to, to 
provide an assessment as to whether the technologies behind uh, the uh, proposed uh, change are mature enough to go into production and have followed best practices. We did this during the pandemic, for example, on the mRNA vaccines that were put in place and went in and had our teams look at whether or not they followed uh, this technology maturity uh, best practices and found that they did. And they were able to do some things uh, concurrently that they had uh, historically be, been done sequentially, but they really were able to follow, follow the, the methodology and the maturity technology according to the guidance that we had, had issued. All righty. Well, we are nearly out of time, but I've got to get in one last question. I wrote a chapter in a book called uh, called Congress Overwhelmed that described the position of the legislative branch support agencies, Congressional Research Service, CBO, GAO, etc., as a as an uneasy one. Uh, in our separation of power systems, most agencies are firmly in the executive branch and ultimately need to respond to an agency head appointed by the president with Senate approval. Uh, but that's not the situation for the folks who lead the legislative support uh, agencies. You all work for Congress, and you have to report to authorizing committees and appropriations committees, and you have to do it in the House and the Senate. And GAO, to make things even more complicated, much of your work is driven by committee chairman requests. With all that, with so many kind of masters to answer to, how do you navigate uh, those difficulties? How do you manage an agency and keep doing things well enough so that you've got Congress who's so happy they just keep giving you more work? <laughs> well, what you have to realize, Kevin, is that while we're in the auditing and evaluation business, we're also in the relationship business. We're in the communication business, but relationships matter. Uh, and we have uh, a set of congressional protocols that we've negotiated uh, with the Congress. And what we did was we negotiated with there's a 10-member congressional commission that's appointed when there's ever a vacancy in the controller general position. And they do a search and then come up with three or more names to go to the president for selection and their Senate confirmation. Now, once that happens, the president has no role, as you're pointing out. Uh, in, in GAO, but we'd sort of have a, a board of directors that we, we treat as this 10-member congressional commission. So we work with them on a set of protocols. Then we work on a, f a five-year strategic plan for the Congress and for the country, and we start with uh, interest from the congressional committees because they and the members, they have a lot of insights based upon their constituents' discussions and their contacts with industry and individuals. And uh, we have outside panels and experts and things, and a lot of institutional knowledge in GAO. You know, most of our people have been there 25, 30 years. And so we have a deep knowledge. And because the Comptroller General position is in place for 15 years, we have more continuity than any uh, other part of the, of the federal government, uh, particularly the executive branch. I mean, you have some continuity at the Federal Reserve, uh, but GAO, with this 
uh, appointment process that we have, which I believe has worked very well, uh, has a lot of continuity. So we have longstanding relationships uh, with the congressional committees, and we're always in, in discussion with them. Now, the strategic plan, what it does is help identify areas we think are important, the Congress thinks it's important. So most of what we do is a shared agenda. And even though the requests come in or, or uh, legislative provisions or committee or conference reports, most of those things are a result of already discussions that have been had between GAO and uh, the uh, committee staff and the members. I also meet, uh, try to meet on a regular basis with the chairs and ranking members of each uh, committee uh, of the Congress to understand their priorities, to explain uh, how GAO functions to them, and, and we work on a number of uh, common issues. I was just up this morning meeting with the, the chairman of a, of a committee. And so I, I try to provide those outreach things. And so and, and uh, I also, though, also you have to understand that each executive branch administration has a corollary party in the Congress. So it's important to have good constructive uh, relationships with the executive branch agencies. Otherwise, they're going to, you know, raise issues with their particular party, no matter what, what party it is. Uh, in the Congress, so it can it can create problems. So you need to have good relationships with every committee. You need to have good relationships with uh, the executive branch agencies. I meet with all the agency uh, heads as they're confirmed and put in place to explain our relationship, make sure we have good constructive relationships. And when there are problems, and there there are always problems at some point, and reluctance to share information with us. Then I can. It's more easy to work those out if you have already established relationships. But it's very important that you know we're guided by a set of very important values in GAO, and this helps us anchor us and you know, make sure we have good uh, integrity that we're professional, objective, fact-based, nonpartisan, non-ideological, fair, and balanced. And that is uh, something that's imbued in every GAO employee. They're independent, they're nonpartisan, you have to act that way. And every uh, audit, and every engagement that, that you're on in order to make sure that we can maintain and enhance our reputation with the agencies. I'm very proud that we have a very good, solid um, relationship uh, in the Congress on a bipartisan basis, both in the House and the Senate. Uh, and that's due to a lot of work and a lot of adherence to our values and professional standards uh, over a long period of time. Gene Dodaro, Controller General, thank you for making time in your very busy schedule to come on the show and help us better understand what exactly does the Government Accountability Office do. And thank you, Kevin. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jae-hun Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you will share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. 
Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.